Good morning. We are rounding out our Following Jesus series, and we are uh, ending seven weeks of walking through what it looks like, what it means to follow Jesus, whether it's in uh, living in the story of Scripture, the story by how we know Jesus, or spending time in His presence in prayer, and then these final three weeks in our actual practical lives, what does following Jesus look like? How does that play out as Christ works through us and by us? We have talked about in the last three weeks, time. We talked about our bodies last week. And if you want to listen to that or you missed that, you can go back and listen to that as it's a topic we don't cover a lot. And so it's maybe a good reference point to go back and see what God speaks to about who we are and these physical bodies he's given us. Today, we're going to be talking about money. What does it mean uh, that God has a plan for our money, that he has a desire for our money, um, and how to work through it? the physical aspects of our lives. As we talk about money, I know that for some of us, this could be a controversial topic or sometimes we kind of put up a little guard as we talk about it. Um, I am acutely aware uh, of my own life with money and I don't know if you've ever been here. In college, at one point, I had a debit card declined when I bought a 79-cent bagel. And I remember feeling that was a low point in my life. I was like, I have less than 79 cents in my account. That's pretty bad. I thought, surely I had enough for this. That's not the case of my life anymore. As we talk about finances, there's a few, I think, roadblocks we can kind of put up in our minds. First is maybe the question of like, you don't understand my particular struggle. You don't understand where we are financially, how tight it is, what we're walking through. And we can't be generous because we're struggling in this moment. I think God still has things to say to us when we're in our financial struggle moments. Or maybe sometimes it's this, and this image is a picture of it. The church just wants my money. I don't like when the church talks about money. They just want my money. They just want to get rich. We have famous Instagram now called Preachers and Sneakers, where somebody goes through and takes pictures from live streams of mega churches and then details out how much every aspect of their outfit costs. Uh, it's taken on a life of its own. And that guy actually has gotten a book published about Preachers and Sneakers. It's that relevant and important. These shoes were like $60. I think we got on sale. Um, but this is a perspective of church. Church just wants my money to do the things they want to do, and they just want to get wealthy themselves. Or it's even just the side hustle culture, right, that we go into now in our current communities. Like, I got to work hard. I got to have a main job and a side job and a side hustle as well, where I'm also trying to work. And if you're not working your minutes, you got to get your energy up. I watched a video somebody shared about a guy who was like, yeah, I found a way to break my life into, into I work two days for every day you work one day. The first day I start at 6 a.m. and then I work to noon and that's day one. And then the second day now I start at noon and I work to 6 p.m. and that's day two. And somebody said, he just defined morning and afternoon. That's not two days. That's hustle culture. That's just life. And maybe lastly, the fourth here, the money is a private discussion. Um, we just don't talk about it. I, for some reason, this image just cracked me up. I don't know what it is. Like his weird smile. That's literally a stock photo when I looked of money privacy. I got this image of this guy with, I guess, like hundreds of dollars and he's got a secret of it. But sometimes we say it's like, oh, it's a private thing. Like, we shouldn't be talking about it. This is a personal thing. Don't, don't pry into this. I mean, 
I want to say, I don't think anything is off the table for what God has given into our lives, and he has a way to, a will and a word to say about it, because he breathed all of this into motion, and if we can't talk to each other with honesty and vulnerability, what are we doing as a church? What is the gospel of Jesus Christ doing in our lives. Full disclosure, the last three weeks of this series were much more stressful for me to prepare than talking about the Bible and talking about prayer. Talking about our time and talking about our bodies and talking about our money is a much scarier topic for a preacher than Bible and, and prayer. But I think it's important and it's an p- aspect of what God has to do and say in our lives. You can move on from this guy, please. <laughs> uh, Let's just leave them up the whole time. Uh, Jesus talks about money. He does. One third of the parables, he uses money as a, a metaphor and a, an object to teach in. It doesn't mean that a third of his parables are about money, but it means he uses money as a tool for us to understand, whether it's resources or whether it's investments or whether it's products. He uses those as a way to talk about the kingdom of God. He uses the language we use, our jobs, our resources, how we pay for things, to feed our children, to make investments in our future. He takes that and says, I understand it. How do we now put that in light and in the context of the kingdom of God? How does God's kingdom work? And how do we look forward to the resurrection and the restoration of all things? What do our finances and our resources have to do with that? This may help us frame our understanding of money. And throughout this morning, we're going to simply talk about, I think my main point I'm leaning in is, whose money is it? Basic question. That answer to that question helps frame a lot about our perspectives of our stewardship, a lot about our perspectives of generosity, a lot about our perspectives of ownership and how we hold on to it. We're going to look through one main passage to frame this up for us this morning. We'll look to Matthew chapter 25. If you have your Bibles with you, you can turn there. (coughs) I'll be using the New Living Translation. There are little blue Bibles underneath half of your chairs if you want to turn there and go through it with me. Matthew chapter 25. We'll look through most of this passage. We'll start in verses 14 and 15. Matthew 25 verse 14 begins as this. Again, the kingdom of heaven can be illustrated by the story of a man going on a long trip. He called together his servants and he entrusted his money to them while he was gone. He gave five bags of silver to one, two bags of silver to another, and one bag of silver to the last, dividing it in proportion to their abilities. He then left on his trip. This is a story off the back of several stories. This story is pretty famous. We, we call it the parable of the talents. A talent was actually a, a amount of money at the time, but you can also hold it as your ideas of your abilities and your talents, but we're going to look at it through the literal lens of the finances used here. But this story is off the back of several stories that are future-oriented, where Jesus is talking about when God returns, what does he expect out of us? When God comes back and restores all things, What is his perspective on what we've done with the things around us going to be? How we've stewarded creation, how we've stewarded our relationships, how we've stewarded the resources he's entrusted to us. One of the things that Jesus says throughout is, we have no idea when God is returning. 
despite whatever YouTube account you may follow of someone who seems very confident or a large chart somebody has of Revelation, we have no idea. We have no idea of when Christ is returning, of when God is going to restore all things. We pray and trust that He is going to, and in that, He will restore all things to the good nature He has made them to be, but we don't know. And Jesus says, we don't know. He says, be ready at any moment that what you're stewarding has effect. What you're stewarding has a cost. Four stories about the future, including the story of the bridegrooms and the oil that they're carrying. The overriding principle of all of them is that God has expectations for what we do with what He's entrusted to us. Whether that's our time, as we've talked about, whether it's our bodies, whether it's our money, or a lot of things, frankly, the relationships, our giftings and talents themselves, our perspectives and, and our education, what we do with all of these resources God has put into our lives. In this story, it's a story about a promise of reward. Some are wasteful and they've not prepared. Others are prepared and attentive, planned and expecting a reward, and they are welcomed in. So before we read the fullness of this story, he is building on an idea. He's building on an idea here. We don't know when God will call us to account, so make the most of the time we have. In essence, don't be wasteful, don't be lazy, don't be selfish. Live our lives with an awareness that it matters, that this matters, that these physical things matter, the resurrection tells us we are not disembodied souls. We are embodied souls, and this world matters. These materials matter. These people matter. What we do with them matters. He calls together his servants, and he entrusts them with his money while he is gone. This is the first principle we'll learn here, and there's really just two. This first principle, it's not your stuff. It's not. It may feel like it because you've worked hard and you've been responsible and you say, yeah, I earned this. This is my stuff. Or it may feel like it because there's a burden to it. Like, I got to care for this and I have children and they have children and I got to plan all of this. It's my responsibility. The very first principle in Scripture, it is not our stuff. It is all God's possession. He's given it to us as a gift. He's given it to us as temporary stewards. We are stewarding what belongs to the Father. We are stewarding what belongs to Christ Jesus himself. We are taking care of someone else's wealth and beauty and creation. It's not your stuff. Be grateful for what God has given you. What does it mean that it's not ours? The first is that be grateful. Be grateful that you've been given a gift. When Kate and I got married, my brother-in-law let me borrow his Audi. He has a much nicer car than we do. And he said, hey, drive from the wedding to the airport in my Audi. I'd like, I think it'd be a fun experience for you. You guys can drive in it. And I remember feeling like a, a sense of dread 
Um, the car had like over 300 horsepower. I've, all my cars have been like just a four-cylinder little pokey guy that when I go up a hill, they're like screaming, trying. Like, I, we can do this. And I was like, I don't know. I'm terrified of this car. It's worth more than the combined average of everything else I own in my life. And I don't want to wreck it. Also, it's been a really long day of our wedding and our reception and dancing, and I'm a little stressed out driving this to the airport, but at the same time, there was a part that I was like, boy, this is cool, that my brother-in-law trusts me with this. I get to drive this tonight. Kate and I get to experience what it's like to be people with a different career than we both have and ride in this car. There was something about the fact that it wasn't mine and someone cared about me enough to trust with me something that had value to them. I said, you know what? This would be a moment of gratitude. Not a moment of fear, a little fear, but a moment of gratitude. I get to do this. This is a joy and a privilege to enjoy this. If God is creator and ruler of all, then everything we have comes from him. And that means my life, my time, and my resources are all a gift. They're all a privilege. And how quickly our lives can change when we switch from thinking of our resources as a right that we have and deserve to a privileged gift that we're given to enjoy. The switch is monumental. I think I shared this a few years ago, but there was a commercial years back of a husband that wakes up. He wakes up in bed, it starts with a shot of him, and he looks over at his wife in the morning, and she is wrapped in wrapping paper. Um, And he's like, unwraps it, and it's just his normal wife in her normal pajamas there, and he unwraps it, he goes, I have a wife? Oh my God, that's incredible. Thank you, this is the best day ever. I have a wife, we're in bed together, we're waking up together, this is the best. And he goes into his bathroom, and his toothbrush is wrapped up, and he's like, ooh, what's this? He unwraps his toothbrush, he goes, I have a toothbrush for my teeth. I don't have to just use my finger, this is awesome. I have a toothbrush, and it continues to go on. He goes down, each individual egg is wrapped up, and he's like, an egg, another egg? I mean, today, that's that really is valuable. Then as he goes on, it's like his shoes are wrapped up, his car is wrapped up. All these things that we think of as just day-to-day aspects of our life, he now sees them as gifts and joys with gratitude. It can change our perspective from being people when we believe it is our right and we deserve it, every moment of when it's taken away from us feels like a punishment. And we fight for it and we're angry about it. That was mine. I deserve that. Why is this taken from none of it was mine? I got something new? That's awesome. I lost something? Well, it wasn't mine in the first place. I'm going to be grateful for what I do have and walk forward in that. The second, we walk in with gratitude. The second is when it's not ours, we take better care of it. Take better care. It's not mine. It was given to me. My neighbor once, I borrowed his uh, leaf blower, and he said to me, treat it like it's yours. And I said, you don't want me to do that. I will treat it like it's yours, and I will take better care of it. The master in this passage shows trust with high valuable property. He gives the servants the equivalent, we read it, you know, 10 talents, five talents, one talent, okay, $10, $5, what is that? But that 10 talents is the equivalent of a lifetime of money. This is a whole career of resources he's given to his servant. 
for our time, hundreds of thousands of dollars trusted in, an entire winery trusted into. You're in charge of my property now. You are leading this. And then he leaves. And then he's gone. Here's an incredible amount of responsibility. Here is incredibly valuable property. I'm gone. Take good care of it. Bye. We can then view that, again, as a burden or as a privilege. My brother-in-law trusted me with his car. I could have driven all the way to Newark Airport with this just intense fear and anxiety. It's his car. It's a burden. I don't know. I don't want to scratch it. I don't want to ruin it. What, What RPM should an Audi be at? I have no idea. This shifter is a circle. I don't know. What am I doing? And stressed the whole way through. When someone gives us something, sometimes it's a burden, right? I've heard this story about when people go on a game show and they win like a washer dryer on The Price is Right and they come back and like, and then I realized I had to pay taxes on it. And it was a burden, not a privilege. It wasn't a gift. It was a responsibility. But if you love the one who has trusted it to you and know that the one who has given it to you loves and values you, you take it as an honor to take care of it. This has been trusted to me by someone who I deeply value. And it's an honor and a way for me to show love in how I care for it. Jesus says this in John chapter 18. He says this about his disciples. He says right before, he's in the garden, right before he goes to his own death on the cross, he says, Father, you've given me these disciples and I have stewarded them. I've not lost one of them except for the one destined to, but the 11, I haven't lost any of them. You gave them to me as a sacred trust. I have taken care of them. He's given us all of this as a sacred trust. A resilient follower of God takes care of his possessions and values them. Whether that may be literal, tiny human beings that look like us, we steward them. The community of people he has placed you in, the churches, our neighborhoods, even our nation that we get to live in, we steward it well. The planet we live on, we steward well. Regardless of your eschatological views, we steward this planet well because God has given it to us and said literally in Genesis 1.27, take care of it. The materials he's blessed us with, our educations, our finances, our wealth, and even the most valuable the story he's placed in us, the story of his son, Christ Jesus, of who God is and what he's done for us. We steward it with a sacred responsibility and trust. It reminds me of one of my favorite franchises, the the Dark Knight Batman series with Christian Bale. In Batman Begins, there's a moment where Uh, Bruce Wayne comes home, and he's in a bad way. His parents died. He's kind of an orphan. He travels the world. He's angry. He comes back home, and he wants to kind of burn everything he owns to the ground because he just sees regret and pain. And Alfred Pennyworth, the uh, butler of the home, is arguing with him. And he's like, no, you can't burn this. Your father built this. Take care of this. And Bruce Wayne says to him, what do you care? None of this is yours. Why do you care at all about any of this? And he says, direct quote, Well, I substituted one curse word. I care because a good man once made me responsible for what was most precious to him in the whole world. We care because God has trusted us with what is most precious to him in this whole world. Not your money, 
But this planet, these people, the creation, the human beings, the other image bearers around us, and to move forward the idea that a third of the parables center around money, our resources are a main tool God has given us to do that, to steward well and to care for his people. And so third thing from knowing that the money is not ours is hold it loose. Hold it loose in your hand. It wasn't yours to begin with. Don't tighten that grip down. The way they used to catch raccoons is you'd put a shiny object in a box and you could fit your hand into the box when your hand was open, but when your hand was closed, couldn't fit your hand back out of it. And a raccoon would grab a shiny spoon or a fork that they would put in there and never get his hand out of the box. And then the farmer would just come over, raccoon was there, trapped in the box, kill the raccoon, do whatever they want with it because they just didn't let go, just couldn't release the grip on it. When it's not your stuff, you don't lose when it's gone. It wasn't yours to begin with. There is so much joy in holding on with a loose grip. I got it, but I'm holding loose. We are much better postured to be people of generosity and to let it go when we hold it loose. So much easier to let go and give to someone else when I'm not clinging to it hard. Okay. I think a tool that Scripture and the tradition of the church has given us is something known as the tithe. Tithe literally translates to 10, 10%. I'm going to give you right now, in three minutes, a brief biblical history of the tithe. Start the clock. Genesis 14, verse 20. Abraham gave Melchizedek a tenth of all the goods he had recovered. Melchizedek, mysterious sort of Christ-pointing figure in the Old Testament. Abraham wins a battle, gives 10% of all that came in to this guy Melchizedek, this priest-type figure, also a king-type figure. It's important to note this passage because this is pre-law. This, no Moses, no Exodus, no Ten Commandments, no law written down. This is before all of that. So it seems to indicate that a tithe or a life of generously giving back what's given to us is some sort of natural ancient principle beyond just laws given in ancient Israel. Number two, Exodus 23, verse 16. Now we get to the law. Second, Celebrate the festival of harvest when you bring me the first crops of your harvest. This is known as and often translated as first fruits. Give me the first fruits of what comes into you. The first, the best that comes in. Give me the first 10% of that as a trust, as an obedience. Give it back to me. Second, now we see tithe as law, that God places it. This is a law for you, for who you are, in order to trust me. That tithe supports the temple the activity of, of their religious culture, and it supports the poor, those who are less fortunate. Third, we'll jump to Malachi, chapter three, verse 10. Writes, bring all of the tithes into the storehouse so there may be enough food in my temple. If you do, says the Lord of heaven's armies, I will open the windows of heaven for you. I will pour out a blessing so great you won't have enough room to take it in. Try it, put me to the test. This is maybe the most famous passage on the tithe. A lot of pastors will Malachi 3.10 is their main root one. And what we see here is tithe as a test, a test of trusting God's goodness, of trusting God's ability to provide. If he gives me 100% of all these resources and I say, no, I'm gonna live on 90%, I'm gonna give this back to you, it is a test on us of our obedience and it's also a test on God of, hey God, if I'm giving away this portion of my resources back to you, I'm trusting you're gonna be able to do more with the other 90 than I could do with the 100. Fast forward to Luke 11, verse 42. 
Jesus now speaking. What sorrow awaits you, Pharisees? For you are careful to tithe, even the tiniest income from your herb gardens, but you ignore justice and the love of God. You should tithe, yes, but do not neglect the more important things. Now we see Jesus takes the tithe and he says, tithe is important, yes. It's a place to build our obedience on God. It's a place of trusting God's provision in us and to live on less, to be generous people. But he says, it's not the most important thing. The tithe leads us to justice by generosity. The tithe leads us into the greater principle that there are people in this world who are blessed, there are people in this world not blessed, and our call as followers of God is to take care of those who have less than us. And the tithe is a tool to teach us to live in that way, that I don't take all of my resources and use them for myself. I give them back to God, and God then chooses to care for his people. Fifth and final, we jump to 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7. This is now Paul writing to a church in Corinth. You must each decide in your heart how much to give, and don't give reluctantly or in response to pressure, for God loves a person who gives cheerfully. Don't give because a pastor told you to. Don't give because someone's making you feel guilty. Give because God has given to you so abundantly and give because you're full of joy at the generous gifts he's given to you and you wanna see others filled with that joy as well. The tithe then leads to cheerful generosity. The tithe is an Old Testament tool given to us to lead us to the greater principle of living in generosity. And now you can make an argument that tithe doesn't hold the same power in the New Testament as it did in the Old Testament. It served as kind of a guide and building. But you cannot argue away that in the New Testament it was any less than a tithe. Any argument is that it's more. They gave their whole life away. They sold their properties, farms, shared with each other, lived in these sort of communes where each of us gets to it. We come to communion, and the wealthy ones of us, we pay for the dinner for everybody so that the poor can come in and eat too. They gave much more of their lives away. They lived in what Paul would call cheerful generosity, that they give away that God would use. All right. That's the history of the tithe, building in us a principle of generosity and trusting God in our resources and our finances. To wrap this portion up, we read Joshua chapter 24, verse 19, one of my, famous, my favorite Old Testament passages. I gave you land you had not worked on. I gave you towns you did not build. The towns where you are living now, I gave you vineyards and olive groves for food, though you did not plant them. We live as products of generations who came before us, people who built and given, given us wealth, given us homes, given us directions and stable homes in order to build our wealth on. But all the more so, we live in the abundance of what God has set up for us over where God has placed us in our lives. Esau McCulley, a, a wonderful theologian and writer in the modern day, says, when I think about privilege... He was like, I don't just think in the terms we modern use it of white or black or minority and majority. I think about it as each and every one of us has so many different privileges in our lives. I've had the privilege of a stable home. I've had the privilege of education. I've had the privilege of safety and all of these things who make me who I am that I didn't create or earn. They were given to me. Yes, there are areas where we work very hard, but there are so many areas of things we couldn't control that were gifted into our lives. There are others who don't have those gifts. And God says, when you practice obedient, 
giving back, when you practice generosity, you trust me to be able to care for every person and to use the generous gifts I've put in your life. The root of bitterness, anger, and disappointment comes from living a possessive life, that this is mine. The root of joy comes from living a generous, gratitude-filled life, that none of this is mine. We'll continue into our second and final point. Matthew chapter 25, verses 16 through 18. We'll finish the passage. The servant who received the five bags of silver began to invest the money and earned five more. The servant with two bags of silver also went to work and earned two more. But the servant who received the one bag of silver dug a hole in the ground and hid the master's money. Yes, there's a humorous juxtaposition in this passage. It is funny. They're working, they're working. This guy's like, no, I'm burying it in the hole. No one's going to see it. The principle is obvious. God gives to give away. It's how he works, how he's always worked, how he works in us. He gives so that we give away. He gives to bless us so that we become a blessing to others. Use what God has given you for other people. Examine that. Where do my resources go? Am I living a life that's bringing love, gratitude, and joy into others, or am I using it for myself? Began in this passage as a Greek imperative. It means he began right away. Like the owner closed the door, and he immediately was like, all right, what's the work? What are we doing? And investing the money also doesn't mean what we picture it now. He's not opening up a mutual fund and he's diversifying it between precious metals and pharmaceuticals and he's got a nice diverse mutual fund of balance there. He gets a nice 5%. That's a good stable growth rate. It's not making that plan. It means he went out and he started businesses, started jobs. He employed other people. He brought them into the fold and he said, I have this money. All right, we're going to start this business over here. I'm going to hire these people to work in it. They're going to work in it. We're going to produce more in here. And his money then goes to invest in other people, to bring other people into it, to use them and to bless them and to give their lives purpose too. The money then doesn't just grow for the person. It grows all of those around them. Generosity. We know the pattern of God is to give away his resources. We call him a generous God. That's a phrase we use over and over again. It is a character trait. He made creation and he handed it to humans and he said, take care of it and multiply it in Genesis 1.27. Work it and become creators yourselves. Become curators yourselves. He chose a family in Abraham and he says, I will bless you so that you bless others. He enters our world in Jesus, and he gives, and he gives, and he gives of his time, of his talents, of his love, of his miraculous power, of his knowledge. In the most extreme example, he gives and uses his literal life for the blessing and benefit of others. What God has given you is not yours. He wants you to use it to bless others. It's not yours, and the owner of the resources has a preference for how his resources are used, not to hoard and not to create safety, to bless others and to multiply joy in this world. But it comes with another part, be diligent. God gives to give away. It means be diligent with what he's given. We often can't give away 
if we are not careful stewards of what God's given us in the first place. When we talk about finances and we talk about money in the church, there's, an, there's two ways it goes. There's an obvious example, those who see their life value in their money and their resources and in the hustle, right? That's my value. That's who I am. It's earning all that, and it's mine, and I hoard it, right? And there's an easy way, and it normally is when we're younger in life, that we can look at that and be like, yeah, obviously that's bad. I'm not that way. I have no idea where any of my money goes. I have no idea at all. I don't have a budget. I don't hold any of it. Who cares? I'm super generous. I got it. No, you don't. I was a freshman in college, and I'd received the most money I had ever received in my life from my graduation party. I received several thousand thousand dollars at my graduation party. It was a huge party, and I spent like two weeks writing thank you notes. So I did earn it. But in doing it, I went to college. I was a freshman, right? And it was the most money that I'd ever seen. You would think I was like Daddy Warbucks for little orphan Annie as a freshman in college. I was like, hey, we're going out tonight, everybody. I'd be like, dinner's on me. I had no idea what I was doing. I was like, I got a lot of money. I'm going to be a generous person. And I was able to be a generous person for about four months. And then I was a poor person. (laughs) You cannot be generous if you are not first a good steward We cannot give and bless if we are not careful with what God has given it. In all of these, whether it's time, whether it's body, or whether it's money, the principle is the same. We cannot give it away to Jesus Christ if we have not first grabbed it and understood it. To understand our time, to sit and reflect on where our time goes, to write out a schedule of our life, to understand our body and to make health decisions about when we sleep and how we use our phones and what we eat. These require plans. Finances require a budget. Make a budget in your life. Steward your money well. Read the book of Proverbs very slowly and see God's plan for us to steward well the creation he's given us. You cannot be a generous person if you don't understand at all what is happening with the money in your life. The context of this passage is just one of many of a strong theology of work. And honestly, in the church, we don't teach it enough. I don't teach it enough. A theology of work that we often say or feel that a call into ministry is a call into vocational ministry. I become a pastor or a preacher or a missionary, and I do full-time vocational ministry. That's what God calls us to. That is what God calls very, very few of us to. But God does call all of us. And you can be stewarding and working ministry in the very job you have. That's what Genesis 1.27 is about. It is about a call to serve God through our holy and anointed work by being productive in this world, by being a good steward in this world, by caring for others in this world, providing for children, providing for others, earning an income and stewarding it well so that I can give it away. We are not made to simply float through life. And let me tell you, if you are younger, a little inside secret. The influencers you watch, it looks like they're making a lot of money doing nothing but being beautiful and having fun. That is not true. They work incredibly hard at making it look like they don't work hard at all. That's not a secret. 
They have schedules and plans and budgets and they hustle and they talk with organizations and companies and they sell themselves and they try to get it in and they're working really hard to look like that. But we just see the end product and we say, boy, that's a great life. I would love to just float through life. I always say this whenever a pastor tells me they're called to Hawaii. I'm like, okay, yeah. <laughs> well, me too. Well, we all are. Where's my bathing suit? I'm called to Hawaii. Maybe. Uh, but in it, God is doing something when we are at work, when we are stewarding, when we are diligent. Resilient followers of God are diligent. Not knowing when God is going to call us to account, not knowing when our day may be over, and not wasting the moments of our lives on pure pleasure. Doesn't mean, we've talked about this with time, Sabbath is important, enjoying God's creation is important, but to discern the line when enjoying God's creation moves into indulgence and when he's called us to be back at work. The last one in here, just living on less to live on less than the rest of the world lives on, to live with less, to live more simply, to not keep up with the Joneses, compete with my neighbors and my coworkers for the stuff that we have, the places we're going, the vacations we have, the Instagrams we're able to share with each other. God asks us to sacrifice and to share with others. None of the servants, even the wicked one who's thrown out, are shown to have used the money to make their lives better. None of them do that. They steward it as if it's not theirs, even if they're burying it. God says to be fruitful and multiply, enjoy his creation. And he says that a worker is worth his wage. But his imperative is always to trust him and to give away and live on less. Simple application to ask ourselves, how often do I need to switch my phone to be a better, bigger, shinier phone? How often do I need to become what they call house poor and stretch my mortgage to have the biggest, best one I could have? When do I need a new lease or a higher-end car, that next concert, that next experience, that next drink, that next weekend? Asking ourselves just the question of where I can live on less so that God can do more through me. He can teach me of stewarding it well, and he can use me to bless others. And the last here I want to put in, Amos chapter 5, verses 11 through 12. And we talk about resources and finances. It also comes with an acute awareness in Scripture of advocating for those who have less, advocating for the poor and the vulnerable. Amos chapter 5, verse 11. You trample the poor, stealing their grain through taxes and unfair rent. Therefore, though you build beautiful stone houses, you will never live in them. Though you plant lush vineyards, you will never drink wine from them. You oppress good people by taking bribes and deprive the poor of justice in the courts. We live in this in real time. None of us in the room may be a slumlord that I know of. If you are, just talk to me afterwards and we have things to talk about, I guess. But we live in a culture where capitalism itself is almost its own religion at this point. It's like the God-designed way all of it should work. It is a helpful tool for human beings to organize wealth and resources. One of my favorite economists says that capitalism is like a bull 
if you put harnesses on that bull, it can help create your garden, plow your field. If you let the bull run the shop, he's going to tear down your farm and he's going to smash up your buildings. It's not the Lord of the world. We also need to recognize when the systems we build as human beings turn on us and abuse and use and suck dry the most vulnerable among us and live our lives with eyes wide open and to consider that as followers of Jesus, that there are people born into circumstances not like we're born into, who don't have the advantages we've had and are suffering, and that our act of worship is to be aware of that, to challenge that when we see it, and to work and advocate for the vulnerable. The kingdom of God is not a hustle culture. The kingdom of God is a generosity culture. The kingdom of God is not an individual culture. The kingdom of God is a communal culture, and we live as image bearers of God communally, and we think about those who have less than us. We have financial responsibility to each other, to the less fortunate as an act of worship. And this is not to be guilty when you enjoy the beauty of what God has placed around you. It's not. To have a beautiful dinner with friends and to enjoy God's good creation, to take a vacation and to see the beauty God has made. God loves and values rest and has trees that bear fruit for us to enjoy. But that The warning is when our material possessions become about our own glory and our own love rather than about Christ's glory and the love of his people and his creation. And we'll finish at the end of this passage and we'll land this plane. Matthew 25, verse 24. Then the servant with the one bag of silver came and he said, Master, I know that you are a harsh man harvesting crops you didn't plant, gathering crops you didn't cultivate. I was afraid I would lose your money, so I hid it in the earth. Look, here is your money back. We read it and we like obviously see what's coming, right? That you like come to your boss, you're like, I know that you're a terrible person and I know that you're horrible to be around. So I was scared. It's not a great way to start. And what this means as we talk about our possessions is this. How we view God is how we will view his possessions. Our view of God, who he is, what his character is like, will shape how we treat the possessions he gives to us. If we view God as maniacal, trickster, angry, then we're going to be scared and we're going to hold it close. I don't know. It's that thing when you're a teenager and you're like, I don't know if I want to go up to the altar because God's going to call me to be a missionary in a country I don't want to go to and he's going to ask me to get it. He's not like that. He is not looking to put us in bad places and to trick us and to take from us. His character throughout Scripture is the exact opposite of that. He is always looking to give and to give generously and to give for the blessing of his people. And if we view God as scary and as a hoarder, obviously we're going to hold it all tight. A poverty mentality, a scarcity mentality, that there's just not enough, so I got to hold it tight. God says, no, there is plenty to go around. If a third of the metaphors he used are money, another third are dinner feasts, are parties. Kingdom of God is like a party, and there's too much stuff. That's like three or four of his parables, the problem is there's too much stuff and not enough people. 
There's too much stuff, so invite more people. Go out to the streets. Bring them all in. I have too much food. I made too much. I'm an Italian grandma, and I just made so many pounds of pasta. I need more people. You're so skinny. I got to feed you. If we view God like this, it changes all of it. I don't have to hold tight. He's going to give more. I don't have to fight with somebody else over resources. He wants all of us to be blessed. So I'm going to give to them. I'm going to trust he's going to give me more. And I'm going to give that away. I trust that he gives that more. I'm going to give that away. He has a house on a thousand hills. He's placed planets into motion. He can take care of my mortgage. He can cover my lease. He can take care of my children. We'll close on this meditative. Matthew 6. Jesus says for us, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Pray with me. If you're in the room this morning and you don't consider yourself a follower of Jesus, I want to give you a chance to just make that decision to take that step. And I want to encourage you, this God of generosity, this is Jesus. And Jesus has so many gifts to give to you. The gift of his loving presence, the gift of eternal life, the gift of security and value and love unimaginable. He has to give to you. And all he asks of you is to believe, to believe that that is true and to trust in him. Pray this with me. Jesus, in this moment, I trust that you are a good, generous God, that you came to this earth as human and man in one. You lived a good and generous life. Then you lived it to its full completion by generously giving of your life to cover my sin, my death, my shame. You took it on yourself on the cross and you died my death. You were buried in the ground for three days and on the third, God honored you by resurrecting you, seating you at his right hand where you rule and reign and your promise to us is that if we trust in you, we would rule and reign. We would have the resurrection and the life for eternity and in this world. Jesus, you gave your life to me. Today, I commit my life to follow you. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen and amen. If you prayed that for the first time at the end of service, we'll have elders up here on the left and the right. We would love to just pray with you, celebrate that with you, talk about next steps in your life. If you are a follower of Jesus, take this as another moment to recommit and reconnect into what God is doing in your life. I'll ask you to stand with me as we close this morning.